We live in a world that in many, many ways has traded substance for style. That's been the trade, substance for style. In many ways, people today will not sit for, or for that matter, stand for substance. Why? Because we want style. We want it presented in a certain way. We've got to have it in a certain way. And even to the point where we will sacrifice the substance for the desire for the style. You will notice this when it comes to education. If you look at education statistics over the last, let's say, 50 to 75 years, back 50 years ago, SAT scores were high. If you go back and look at the SAT scores from 50 years ago, you had high SAT scores. And the scores, the SAT scores have plummeted over the years drastically over the last 50 years. And the question is, why? Why have these test scores come down? Well, there are many answers, and perhaps you have an answer or whatever. Maybe you've read some studies. In 1950, only 8% of households had a TV set. You can literally watch the decline in SAT scores plummet along the lines of the gradual TV ownership. As TVs became more prevalent, the entertainment, the style, the pizzazz of that type of entertainment, education took a hit. The only way that SAT scores have come back up is because they have rewritten the tests to make them easier. Wow. When it comes to real estate, one of the top selling points with homes is curb appeal, right? Curb appeal. It is, how does, the, how does it look? You can change the curb appeal of a house. You can walk up to like just a, like a messed up house, put a new sodded lawn on it, and mulch the flower bed, and oh my goodness, you give, you've given it some curb appeal. Never mind that the plumbing is in really disrepair, and the foundation has a crack in it, and all kinds of stuff. The roof is 22 years old and has some issues, but wow, a fresh coat of paint and some bark uh, on the front really makes it look nice. In the church, there's been a similar issue that we've seen over the last you know, a few decades. And I present to you this illustration. A lady who was very lonesome bought a parrot from a pet store in the cage. You know, she had the pet parrot in the cage and the whole thing. Perhaps it was a big cage, you know. because so a parrot's kind of a big bird. We, we learned a little bit about parrots a couple <laughs> Easter's ago. Remember, were you there for the Easter Sunday? With the ba- it was the battle of... It was, I was battling with the, the screeching parrots there in, uh, in O'Galley Square there. Anyways, so the lady buys a, a parrot and a, and a cage, and before purchasing it, she got a guarantee that the parrot would talk. She took the parrot home, and in a week and a half, she returned to the store very disappointed. And she told the pet store owner, she said, the parrot doesn't talk. And he said, well, did you, did you buy a mirror? No. Every parrot needs a mirror. So she bought a mirror and installed it in the parrot's cage. Another week and a half went by, and she returned, and she said, look, the parrot, we got the mirror. The parrot still doesn't talk. 
Did you buy a ladder? No, every parrot needs a ladder. So she bought the ladder and she installed it in the cage. Another week and a half passed and she returned and she said, look, the parrot still doesn't talk. Well, did you buy it a little swing to swing on in the cage? No. Well, every parrot needs a swing. So she bought a swing and installed it in the cage. And a week and a half later, she returned and she was furious. And the store owner asked, did the parrot talk? And she said, no, he died. Oh, that's terrible, said the pet owner. Did he say anything at all before he died? As a matter of fact, he did. What did he say? He gasped in a very faint voice. Don't they have any food down at that store? We've traded the substance for style in many ways. Now, I want to tell you that I don't think that the two are necessarily mutually exclusive, okay? I think that you can have substance with some style. But the problem really is, in a lot of ways, that as the style has become better, I guess, or whatever, that that's been traded and it's been, it's on, it been on a sliding scale, so to speak. Um, and I've always been for, hey, let's have lots of substance and let's do it with style, amen? But this is the problem. Today in our world, in our community, it's no different. We may be tempted to trade substance for style, but what you and, what you and I need is substance, amen? We need substance, we need sustenance, we need substance. And we need that spiritually. And the world is, I mean, at this point, I mean, it's 2018. I mean, we've got, we've got style. I mean, just look at your phone that you have in your hand, okay? You've got style. What the world needs is substance. The world needs something that's real, amen? And that's exactly what Paul wanted to talk about with the church at Colossae. They were uh, being inundated with kind of some new flashy stylistic teachings that had crept in and around the various churches, and particularly at Colossae. And Paul needed to write, and he needed to write a letter to address this issue because, man, you're, if all you have, if all you have at the end of the day is style, you're going to be like that parrot, grasping faintly, don't they have any food down at that store? And let that not be the case. So Paul brings it in this letter to the church at Colossae, in the Colossians. He brings it, and he brings the substance. This letter is really a letter about substance. I mean, the book, the Bible is a book of substance, and he brings it front and center to what it's all about in Colossians. Paul tells them first, he hits them right between the nose with it. He, he, he just wants to let them know Jesus is God. Jesus is God. He's the creator. And Jesus is the one that's reconciling us to God. So let's take a look at this substance tonight, and perhaps this will be that which you need to hear tonight. We're in Colossians chapter 1, 
Jesus is God. Let's pick it up, verse 15. It says this. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. Jesus is God. He specifically is Yahweh God. In the church at Colossae, one of the heresies that was circling around involved a challenge to the deity of Christ. You had this belief that was circulating that was kind of, and we've talked about this in the first couple of messages, you had, and I saw it in the video, the promo video that I did for the series, I had it on there like an early Gnosticism, or you could call it a, a proto-Gnosticism. Proto me, uh, being a prefix meaning first, like a first Gnosticism or an early Gnosticism. And it was a belief that, and we talked about this too, that all material things, the, the, the material world was ultimately what was evil and that the only and only the spiritual and non-material is good. And so the material was evil and the non-material was spiritual. And so when Christians began to say that that God had come and put on flesh, that that Jesus was the incarnation of 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 the Lord, that this was kind of really butting heads with this this proto-gnosticism. Uh, and, it, and it led to the idea that God could not have created the world and would have no contact with it if indeed that the spiritual, uh, the material world was evil. And if he would not have created the world, he certainly wouldn't come into the world however it was created. Okay, So there's, there's a, a multitude of issues here that, that Paul is, is dealing with. Uh, and so then the Gnostics, these proto-Gnostics, therefore would have taught that God never could have become a human person, that he, he would have never uh, been united with a physical body, a human body, and therefore they denied either the humanity or the divinity of Christ, and, a, and, a, and according to this belief, he could not have been both. These kinds of ideas seek to attack the divinity of Christ And therefore, it attacks Jesus and his work of redemption on the cross because Jesus' work on the cross is tied into who he is and what was foretold of him and what he came to do and that he actually accomplished it. And if we look into the Old Testament, we don't have time tonight to go into the depths of the Old Testament and kind of do a, a proof of the deity of Christ, or uh, you know that whole thing. Um, but I know somebody who wrote a really good book about that subject, and uh, and 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 the book is called "Who Is Jesus?" And and anyways, that you can check it out. We have a couple of copies over here. Um, but let me just present to you. Let me just present to you one verse 
that I think is one of those verses, of all the verses of 39 books of the Old Testament, which you could go through every one of the books and trace down uh, the, the, the pictures of Christ. I mean, Jesus actually put it this way uh, to the Pharisees. He says, you search the, the scriptures, for in them you think that you have eternal life. But these are they that testify of me. In other words, he's saying, look, you search the whole Old Testament because you're, you're trying to attain eternal life and all of it, these are they that testify of me. In other words, it's all about Jesus. But I just want to just kind of grab one um, that I think is one that you kind of have to look at. And, and uh, since we're, we're, it's, it's, how, it's uh, fall, and, and then we're going to go from October to November and then December. And so then we're going to be Christmas. So let's, do, let's read this verse that kind of is people associate with Christmas. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulders. Okay, so this is speaking of Messiah. So a child is going to be born, a son is given, which are two distinct things. Okay, and the government will be upon his shoulder. He will have the key of the government on his shoulder. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor. What's this? Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So he's the son, but he's the mighty God. He's the everlasting father. All in one, all in the Christ, the Messiah. And this is kind of just a picture of who Jesus is. And so... Paul starts here by declaring that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Go back to verse 15 there. He is the image of the, the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. The word for image there is, is the Greek word icon, uh, and it's spelled E-I-K-O-N. But it's where, it's where we get our word for icon. When you think of an icon, any... any uh, graphic designers in the house. You know what an icon is. You know what a, uh, an image is, right? And so these icons, these image, you, could, you, can, um, you can Google, like uh, if you're looking for like a little picture to, to represent like, you know, uh, something that you're doing, you can look for a, uh, you know, I don't know, a house icon. And it'll be like a little icon, a little image of a house or whatever it is that you're looking for. So an icon is, is an image. It's where we get our word for icon. The word means representation and manifestation. Like the head of a sovereign, a king, imprinted on a coin. So Christ is the exact representation, the image, the manifestation of the Father's being. Jesus put it this way. He who has seen me has seen the Father. Anyone who saw Christ, the visible manifestation of the invisible God, thereby had seen God indirectly. John put it this way in the first chapter of his gospel. No one has seen God at any time. Chapter 1, verse 18, I'll have it on the screen for you. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. He has explained him. He has made him known. And so he's the image of the invisible God. Therefore, when I want to know what God is like, I don't have to try to figure out what he's like. I, I have a representation. I have a manifestation. I have something that has manifested 
the, the likeness, the image of God, the invisible God. And his name is Jesus, Jesus the Christ. He alone reveals God in totality. He alone is the image of the invisible God. Next, when Paul says, he says he's the image of the invisible God and he's the firstborn over all creation. Now, this is a verse that has brought some confusion in certain uh, groups out there. One group I'm thinking of um, is a group that you will get a knock on the door uh, from, from these folks from time to time, and they will want to share with you um, about things. And uh, <laughs> one, one of the verses that uh, when you get into talks with them, and I have actually gotten into uh, long talks with these folks, and in, in fact, to the point where I had them trying to act like they, they had another appointment to get to. <laughs> and right when they were leaving, I gave them a copy of my book. I think they took it back to the, to the headquarters. And then I was known in town in South Orlando. And I remember I was sitting at Chick-fil-A. And it was as if, it was as if I heard someone say, yeah, that's him. I think that's him. <laughs> and they came over and talked to me. But anyways... Um, this is, so, so, so the JWs, you know, what I'm, you, you know I'm talking about Jehovah's Witness. Uh, they, they will use this verse of scripture to say that, see, the Bible says that Jesus is the firstborn of creation. So therefore, he, he was a created being. Therefore, he can't truly be one with the Father, right? So you have this, you have the Father, you have Jehovah, per se, Yahweh, and then you have Jesus, who's really a completely separate person, and he cannot be uh, one with the Father as, as we would teach in, in, uh, in, Christian, in, in mainstream Christianity. And this is one of the texts, the proof texts that they use. See, he's the firstborn of creation, therefore he's a created being, therefore he can't be one with the Father because the Father obviously created him if he was the firstborn of creation. Well, it's a misunderstanding of the English translation here. The word in the Greek is actually the word prototokos. Proto, here's that word again. Proto first, tokos, it means first in priority. It means really that supreme one over the creation. So really it is, it is saying he is the creator. He's the firstborn. He's the prototokos of the creation. He is, it's, it's, it's as if to say he is the creator. We, we like to think about, we, we, when we see that firstborn, um, we, we would say, uh, you know, in English, it would be very, we would be very quick to say that that's a word denoting chronology, Right? But it's not really denoting chronology, it's denoting supremacy. Amen? And so it, 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 it goes to the supremacy of Christ, that he is the creator. Amen. For by him all things were created, visible and invisible, material and non-material. He created the, the visible world, Everything that we can see, when you open up your eyes and there's light and you can see, 
everything, all that stuff, all the physical stuff, and even the stuff that's small enough where we can't see it, but it's still physical, he created that. And then the invisible is really the stuff that would not be a part of the physical realm. You see, there is, the Bible teaches, a physical realm and what we would call a spiritual realm or an unseen realm. And so what, what Paul is saying here is he's creator of all of it, all, all, all of the whole thing, the, the physical realm, the seen realm, and he's, uh, he's the creator of the unseen realm. And certainly, if you thought for a minute that Paul was saying prototokos, that he was chronologically the firstborn of creation, then as soon as he said that, 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 that doesn't go. As soon as you say that he's the creator of the invisible realm and the visible, you, you, you can't have a, a chronological interpretation of this, of this verse because he created the unseen realm and those in the unseen realm, the Bible tells us about the unseen realm before the creation. The hosts of heaven in the unseen realm that were with God at the creation, specifically at the laying of the foundation of the earth. So you have those things. So all things were created by him, visible and invisible, material and non-material. All things were created by him and for him. It's as if to say he is the center of everything. All things were created by him and all things were created for him. He's the center of the universe. He's it. And this is so important when it comes to your worldview. Uh, and we've been talking about worldview on Wednesday nights in our series in Romans that we just began. The, the series on Wednesday nights is called Biblical Worldview. And part of a biblical worldview is, and we talked about this in the first week, is knowing that he's, that, that according to the Bible, there's a creator. There's a God. He's personable. He's personal. He's knowable. He's the creator. You're not him. Yeah. <laughs> these, are, these are all some basic points. And part of having a biblical worldview is knowing that he created all things. All things were created for him and by him. Therefore, he's the center of the universe. And man is not the center of the universe. And so you have uh, you have really an, an antithesis, really, to a humanistic or a naturalistic worldview when you understand uh, what's being presented here, that all things were created for him and by him. Everything exists for him. He's the standard. And this changes everything. And it, it should change your view it should ch change your view of you, and it should change your view of the world. It should change your view of what's happening in the world. This is all for him, amen? <laughs> Just when you thought you woke up this morning, you thought, oh, it's, it's, it's for me, it's for me. No, it's not for you. <laughs> it's for him, it's for him. And he's made us, and he's put us in this world to to be reconciled to him, to, be, to enjoy him, to, to have life, and to have life to the full in him. And so he's made us a, a, a big part of this whole thing, but it's all for him, amen? And when we realize that, we'll learn in chapter two that we, when we come under that idea that 
the, 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 the completeness that he had in representing the completeness of the Godhead in bodily form that we have by being reconciled to him. And therefore, in chapter 2, verse 10, Paul says, you are a complete Christian. You are complete in him. Amen? Amen? Yes. So this is all very important stuff. Changes your view of the entire world. <clears throat> Some <coughs> like to live with, <coughs> with a philosophy <clears throat> that they're going to do whatever is going to make them happy. And I see this philosophy, I see this worded in certain ways. And, and you say, oh, well, no, that's, that's kind of an old... No, 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 I see this all the time. I see this all the time. It's in song, it's in poetry, it's in, it's in the message of movies, it's, it's everywhere. It, 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 if it feels good, if it feels right, if it makes you happy, do it. And, that, and that's, kind of the, that's kind of the mantra. And I think that that would probably be true if humanism were true. If humanism were true, I think that would probably be a true, a truism or a true axiom in which to live your life by. But understanding that humanism ultimately is not true, that he's the firstborn of creation, that all things have been made by him and for him, therefore, you've got to watch out for that type of philosophy because you're going to have what you need. You're going to have the life, the love, the fulfillment, the joy in and through him. Amen? Well, let's just take that a step further. When you ultimately live your life under that philosophy, and however you want to, it's been worded many different ways, but people come to the end of that and they realize that it's a real emptiness. They realize that their life is not full. Their life is not what they thought it would be, that it's literally empty. And we, we are seeing an epidemic of um, different kinds of uh, issues with mental illness and suicides and all kinds of things um, and people not being fulfilled. Ultimately, the, the Bible would teach us that we exist for him. Amen. In fact, this is what uh, is said in the book of Revelation, chapter 4, that, that we, ex we exist for his good pleasure, right? So we exist for him. And when you realize this, um, it, it's, it's a game changer. It's a life changer. Verse 18 says... Well, let's go back and read this in context. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and are on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities and powers. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things consist. Verse 17. And he is before all things, and in him all things consist. So not only did he create all things, invisible and, visible and invisible, uh, and he created all, 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 of the, all of the principalities and powers, every, every, every other power that would exist, he is the creator, he's the master over it. 
Paul goes so far as to say that he is before all things and in, in him all things consist. Now, this is, this is an important verse of scripture, I think, to, and I don't want you to forget this one. And I want you to wrap your mind around it. This is actually one of my favorite lines in the entire book of Colossians. In him all things consist. The word consist means to place together, to set in the same place, and to bring or band together. In him all things consist, all things are brought together, are banded together, held together. When you go down into, when you get into uh, studying the physical world, and you get into the study of, when you get down to the atomic level, and you just remember uh, when you studied the atom in school, remember we had this picture you know, on the board, and you have a couple few things that make up an atom, right? You have protons and neutrons and electrons, right? And if you get down below the subatomic level, we're not going to get down into the quarks and the bosons and all that tonight, okay? So we're just going to leave. We're just going to set that over here for another discussion. But I like talking about that stuff too. But you have protons and neutrons, and you have protons that are... There's a question, there was a question in science as to how the protons and the neutrons were banded together because you have opposing repelling forces within the atom, right? And so the question is, what is actually literally holding the atom together? Because you have the proton, the neutron, and the electron. And what uh, science has suggested and now named a particular force and it's one of four forces of the, of the physical world. And you can Google this. Go ahead. It's called the strong nuclear force. And it's literally, and the reason why it's called the strong force, because it's believed to be the strongest force. Uh, it's stronger than the electromagnetic force because it literally holds the nucleus of an atom together without it being just just repelled away from the, 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 the elements of that atom being repelled away from one another. So the strong force opposes and overcomes the electromagnetic force of repulsion between the protons and pushes the protons together. And here we have this scripture in the first century, mid-first mid century, uh, long before really anybody knew anything about an atom, <laughs> and the strong nuclear force, we have Paul telling the church at Colossae that he is before all things, and in him all things are placed together and banded together. And what that tells me is that, you know, we used to sing this song in children's church, you know, he's got the whole world in his hands. He's got, the, he's got you and me, brother, in his hands. He's got you and me, sister, in his He's got, uh, uh, in his, he's got the, the whole world in his hands. You know, and whether, and whether he's got us in, he, obviously he doesn't have the whole world in physical hands, okay? So that's a, 
Anyways, that's a literary device there, but he's literally before all things, and in him all things consist. And so if that's true, then everything in this room is being held together by the Lord. Being held together by the Lord. And so, man, just think about that when you wake up in the morning. (laughs) I don't know if I'm going to be able to hold it together today, Lord. (laughs) Don't worry, I'm holding everything together for you. (laughs) Don't worry, in him, all things, in me, all things are being held together. So just trust in me. Just put your faith in me. Just rely on me. It's Jesus who holds all things together, and it's Jesus that can hold your life together. And, and, and you have those moments. You and I both. We have those moments where our life feels like a bunch of protons wanting to propel in different directions. And it feels like it's going to explode and come apart. And you wonder, how is this thing being held together? And all along it's the Lord. Amen? Yes. Amen? But he doesn't end there. He says Christ is the head of the body, the church. Go back to verse 18 there. And he's the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. He's the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn. There it is, the prototokos. He's the preeminent one over uh, the resurrection, right? And there you could say he's preeminent and chronologically first, right? And the objection there would be, well, wait a second. There were others that were resurrected, right? If you read the Gospels, you come to John chapter 11, and Jesus actually raised, he raised people from the dead. He raised Lazarus from the dead. Remember, he showed up, he showed up in Bethany late to, you know, Martha was, you know, Jesus, you, you could have been here. You could have done something about Lazarus, but he's dead. And he says, she says, hold on, hold on. I'm the resurrection and the life. And he, 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 he tells Lazarus, come forth, right? And Lazarus comes forth out of, the, out of the grave. The point there is that Lazarus uh, is really a more of a resuscitation than a resurrection. Um, He came forth and he had, basically his spirit was revived back into his same physical body. When Jesus came out of the grave on that Sunday morning, he did not come out of the grave with that same physical body, but it was transformed and it it was the firstborn over the resurrection, he had that spiritual body. And so he is preeminent because of this, of the resurrection, he's preeminent over the church, which are those who are, who have come into him by virtue of the resurrection. Okay? So this is an important point to know. And where we, okay, we, we're, we're doing good. We're doing good. Feels like there's a lot of moving around, and with, you know, maybe I can do a song and dance, and you know, that'd be style over substance, right? <clears throat> the 
the firstborn of creation, the firstborn of the resurrection. It's important because everyone who's here that is a part of the church of Jesus Christ, not this church, not Calvary, not South Coast, but the church, because you, you know there's, there's, there's only one church, right? Yep. Those of you here that are part of the church, you are a part of the church by virtue of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Right. Amen? Because he came out of the... And this is really close tonight. Um, <laughs> he came out of that grave, and because of his victory over death, he has been placed at that point as the one who is now calling many to eternal life. Amen? So he's the head of the church, the head of the body, the church, by virtue of the resurrection. Now let's move on to the... To the, the uh, the second point tonight in verse 19. The first one tonight was Jesus is God. Secondly, Jesus reconciles us to himself. Let's pick it up, verse 19. It says this, For it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell, and by him to reconcile all things to himself by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. And you who once were alienated and enemies in your mind, by wicked works, yet now he is reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight, if indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. So, he presents Jesus as God. He, he presents Jesus as, as supreme, the, the, this idea of the, the, the supremacy of Christ. And then he says, and Jesus reconciles us to himself. Jesus, who is God, reconciles all things to himself. It's, it, it can be said this way. Jesus on the cross was reconciling the world to himself. And through the cross, through the work of the cross, he made, he made every person eligible for, for salvation. The only step that's left is for that person to literally be reconciled to God. That's why he closes this section off by saying he's made us part of the reconciliation process of by which I have become a minister, right? And so, and this is the way he said it in, in, uh, to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 19, you see it on the screen, that is that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. So on the cross, as Jesus was given, he was the perfect man, he was the God man, but he was the perfect man. He lived a perfect life. He was giving himself up. He was taking the punishment uh, for our sin upon himself. And, 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 and through that work, he's literally reconciling. He's, he's making the world savable and therefore reconciling the world to him and then committing to those who would respond to it the work of re reconciliation, the word of reconciliation. And I was having a discussion with a pastor friend of mine uh, the last couple days, and, we, and, 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 
and he brought up a, a great point about uh, the specificity of the work of the gospel. Because you think where it says in John 3, 16, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, his only begotten son, which seems to confuse, it confuses people in the English because a better translation would be his one-of-a-kind son. For God so loved the world that he gave his one-of-a-kind son. So God loved the world and he did something specific about that. He loved the world and the people who were in the condition that they were in the world. And because of that, he did something specific about that. And because he did something specific there by, by sending his son, by giving his son, his one-of-a-kind son, then it's available to every individual person to be reconciled. Because it says, for God so loved the world, but then whosoever would believe upon him. So God loved the world, but it's whosoever will believe upon him will have everlasting life. Amen? So Jesus was reconciling the world to himself. Wow. What does it mean to be reconciled to the Lord? What does that mean? What does it mean to be reconciled? If, if you and I were going to meet tomorrow, and let's say we said we're going to meet, where are we going to meet? We're going to meet for coffee? We're going to meet for a hot dog? We're going to meet for a burrito? I don't know. We're going to meet somewhere. But we're going to meet at a specific time. Hopefully, we have to have our, we have to, Make sure that our clocks are reconciled together. We have to make sure that, that uh, our watches, our clocks, are on the same time. Uh, so there's no confusion. So we're, we're going to meet at 1 p.m. and your watch would have to be reconciled to mine. Or vice versa. As long as we're on the same uh, page as far as what the time is, then we're gonna, we'll, we'll, we'll meet up at... 1, 1 p.m. What's different in terms of being reconciled to God is God is not uh, uh, reconciling his watch with your watch. <laughs> but you're reconciling your watch with his watch. Amen? You're being reconciled to him. You're being reconciled to that true north, that relationship with God. You're being brought into relationship with the Lord of glory, And so there's this reconciliation to God, not he to us. God didn't change his watch. No, we were the ones who were messed up and out of sync and therefore needed to be reconciled, right? So, and he did this by making peace through the blood of the cross. This means that Jesus has caused those who were his enemies to be made his friends. This is what it means to, that he made peace through the cross. When you read that, you say, well, okay, great. He, he, he made peace through the cross. No, there was, Paul said it this way to the Romans, you know, there was enmity, right? Between God and man, between us and God, you know? And it, it, it really was this 
point of separation. But what God did, what Jesus did on the cross in shedding his blood and becoming the, the, the sacrifice, he, he, he made it possible, he caused those who, were, who had this enmity between them and God to, to, for there to be peace made in that situation. So through Christ's blood, we can now become his friends. It's, it's, it's an incredible, incredible thing. We were enemies of God. We were alienated from God. We were, Paul said it this way to the Ephesians, we were like outside of the, the city of God. If you, if you want to think of, of it as a city, and you can think of it as a city because this is how the, the book closes. <laughs> you turn to the last book, and what is it? It's literally the city coming down. But see, we were outside the city. Paul said it this way to the Ephesians, you were outside the commonwealth, but you've been brought near. You were alienated, but you've been reconciled to the Lord through the blood of Christ by virtue of what he did. And so he took care of the sin for whosoever comes to him and believes will not perish but have everlasting life. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so when we come to him through the work of the cross, we come through him through the blood that he shed upon the cross, therefore making peace, reconciling us, we can be made whole in God. We can be brought back to God. And this is incredible. Because I don't know, I'm sure there, there are many people out there that would, that would justify their sin to, the, to their dying breath. They will go to their deathbed, going, no, I, I, I was okay. We're all okay. We don't need God. And there are the, the, hopefully everyone else who would say, no, I recognize I, the work of the Holy Spirit has been done in my life in such a way that I now recognize I'm convicted and I'm convinced that, I'm, that I have sinned against the Holy God, that he loves me, that he gave himself up for me, and that he's called me to be united together with him, to be reconciled to him. And so how, hopefully that's our story. Hopefully that's our story. If that's not your story, that can be your story. Amen? That's the message of the gospel. That is re responding to the work of the gospel. Because of Jesus' work on the cross, we can be presented to God as holy and blameless. Amen? Paul closes this section. We can be presented holy and blameless. Wow, blameless. I mean, if you really think about that in light of, and I don't want to steer our minds off the track here because we're wrapping this up, but we live in a day and age where accusations fly in every different direction. Some of the accusations are true. Some of the accusations are not true. But whether the accusations are true or not true out there pertaining to someone else, we know and you know that when you look on the inside of you, on the inside of your life, you know if there were to be a light exposed upon, the, upon your deeds, upon the things that you've said, if there, were, if there were this record, this videotape were to roll, 
That's when I'm like the guys at John 8, I'm dropping my stone <laughs> and walking away, right? Let he who's without sin cast the first stone. And it was interesting because the text says, from the oldest to the youngest, they dropped their stones. It was like the old guys dropped their rocks first, man. They were out of there. They were like, man, we've been doing this for a long time. We've, <laughs> we've been messed up for a long time. It was the young guys that were sitting there going, hey, wait a second. Okay, I guess. <laughs> but, we're, but we're made blameless, amen? Blameless and holy if we indeed continue in the faith. So the admonition tonight, he is Lord, he's supreme over all, he's supreme over the creation, he's the, he's the creator, he's the, the prototokos, he's the, 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 the supreme one of the creation, he's the supreme one over the resurrection, he's the head of the church, and he did a work on the cross reconciling the world to himself, and if you'll be reconciled by the work of the blood, the shed blood of Christ upon the cross, you and I can be presented blameless and holy before the Lord.